This morning I invite you to draw your sword and turn to the gospel according to Luke chapter 4 as we continue our eight-part summer sermon series entitled Preaching Christ. We've already heard examples of preaching Christ in the Pentateuch and preaching Christ in the Psalms and preaching Christ in the Prophets. This morning we begin preaching Christ in the New Testament and we see an example of preaching Christ in the Gospels. So once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word as this morning I'll read from Luke chapter 4 beginning at verse 1 and I'll conclude at verse 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it also says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, He left him until an opportune time. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. The story I just read in your hearing immediately follows Luke's rendering of the baptism and genealogy of Jesus. At some level, it makes a whole lot of sense for the temptations of Jesus to follow the baptism of Jesus. It is there at the baptism of Jesus that we receive that Trinitarian selfie. We hear the words of God the Father as he speaks from heaven. We see the obedience of God the Son as he enters the waters of baptism. We see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God as it descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. In our passage, it tells us that that same Spirit of God led Jesus into the desert. It is Mark in his rendering of the very same story that uses a more forceful word. He says that the Spirit of God cast him or threw him into the wilderness. Our verses tell us that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that led him into the desert. The desert is that place where some people of the Old Testament went to meet with God. People like Moses and David. But it should also be noted that the wilderness and the desert represent represent places where the children of Israel disobeyed God. 
When God led them out of their Egyptian captivity, they grumbled and they complained, they argued and they disobeyed as they wandered in the wilderness. It makes some sense for us to stop and think about that the temptations of Jesus immediately follow the high point baptism of Jesus. But then Luke, in between the baptism of Jesus and the temptations of Christ, he plops the genealogy of Jesus. He gives us a list of 74 names. And at first read, these names seem misplaced. If anybody's going to do a genealogy of Jesus, it makes a lot of sense what Matthew did. Matthew put it at the very beginning of his gospel to tell us the identity of Jesus. But, but Luke, in a masterful way, in chapters 1 and 2 of his gospel, he has been interweaving uh, great narratives of the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. It's as if in Luke's version, he says, the birth of John is good, but the birth of Jesus is great. The arrival of John the Baptist is superb, but the arrival of Jesus is spectacular. And he compares and contrasts as he weaves uh, these two birth narratives together between John the Baptist and Jesus. In Luke chapters 1 and 2, Jesus has already been clearly identified as the Son of God. But then, after the baptism of Jesus, before the temptations of Jesus, we find 74 names plopped right there at the end of chapter 3. Now, before you dismiss the genealogy of Jesus as something that is irrelevant, let me just remind you that it is Luke who connects Jesus through the line and lineage, not just to David, but through David. Not just to Abraham, but through Abraham. It is Luke that traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. So make no mistake that Luke is keenly aware that where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. The first Adam failed in the Garden of Eden. The second Adam will succeed as verified in the Garden of Gethsemane. The first Adam was overcome by temptation. The second Adam will overcome temptation. The first Adam was selfish. The second Adam will be selfless. The first Adam introduced the power of sin into the human race. The second Adam will destroy the power of sin in the human race. The first Adam brings condemnation. The second Adam brings salvation. Make no mistake about it that Luke is telling us very clearly that where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. And still, even as that is being spoken, there have been some who have asked a legitimate question of our passage. The question usually goes something like this. Since Jesus is the second Adam, and since Jesus is the perfect Son of God, was it even possible that Jesus could fall to these temptations? Was it even possible I mean, he is the perfect son of God. He is the second Adam who will succeed in all things. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. Was it even possible? Was it even fathomable for the second Adam to fall to these temptations? And while that is a legitimate question, let me just remind you that sometimes we ask questions of the text that the text does not supply the answer for. 
But even with that being said, suffice it to say that Luke is recording a real experience. These are real temptations and they are enormously enticing to Jesus and to you and to me. There is something about these temptations that are powerful. There is something about these temptations that even would have been tempting for Jesus himself. For let me remind you what the author of the Hebrew letter says, that Jesus is our high priest. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. It takes far more strength to overcome temptation than to succumb to temptation. And if this was not a temptation that was legitimate and real for Jesus, he would have laughed it off. He would have sloughed it off. But instead, he fought the adversary with the greatest tool in his arsenal and our arsenal, which is the very word of God. And so because he fights with the same weapon that you and I have, it lends itself to believe that these are real temptations. They are enticing to Jesus. And yet Jesus will overcome temptation. Why? Because where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. Jesus is thrust into the wilderness. And we are given privilege of knowing three of those temptations. The first temptation is a temptation of selfishness over submission. Selfishness over submission. Jesus had been in the desert for 40 days. Luke makes it abundantly clear that the adversary had been tempting him all along. It's not that the devil waited until the very last uh, day of that 40-day period. No, it seems as, as you read the text that that the devil had been tempting him all throughout. But at the end of that 40-day period, after Jesus had been fasting for more than a month, Luke tells us that Jesus was hungry. Friend, that is keen insight into the obvious. Most of us can't go 40 hours without food, let alone 40 days. Jesus had gone 40 days without food, and so he was hungry. When you and I are hungry, some of us get cranky. We get irritable. We get rude. We get obnoxious. We become weak. It's in that weakened human condition that the adversary approaches Jesus. And we are given privilege of hearing the first of these temptations. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. When the devil says, if you are the son of God, please do not read into that, that he is questioning the identity of Jesus. The word that is rendered if in your translation should better be understood as since. Since you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. What the adversary is doing is he is hearkening back to the baptism of Jesus For he is reminding Jesus what God the Father said of Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And the devil says to Jesus, since you are the son of God, since it's already been spoken to anybody who will listen, since God and all of heaven has declared that you are the son of God, since you are the son of God, it is is simply in your capacity to change this stone into bread. Since you are the son of God and since you're hungry, Why don't you just meet your own needs? Since you are the son of God and since you are famished, just command this stone to become bread. Now on the surface, this doesn't sound like a bad idea. In fact, a lot of temptation doesn't sound like a bad idea on the surface. On the surface, this sounds quite harmless. It's not like the devil is asking Jesus to do anything strenuous. I mean, Jesus would not even have to break a sweat in order to do this. 
He wasn't asking for a massive miracle. The devil was not tempting Jesus to uh, feed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. He wasn't asking for a big time miracle of, of like standing in front of a, a, a dead man's tomb and saying, Lazarus, come out of the dead man, come hopping out of the grave. He's not asking for the pentacle Messiah to give the, the, the mammoth uh, miracle of uh, being raised from the dead himself. He's not asking for a big miracle. He's just asking Jesus to rearrange some molecules. That's it. To change hard stone into a soft loaf of bread. What he's tempting Jesus with is this notion that I think you can take better care of yourself than God can take care of you. I don't think God's taking care of you, Jesus. The devil is saying to Jesus, you are the son of God. And God has stuck you in this desert for 40 days and 40 nights. You haven't had anything to eat. You're about to launch into a three-year ministry for this God. And this God has not even provided you anything to eat. No sustenance for your daily life. Listen, I think from the very outset, you need to tell God who's boss. You need to show him that you are capable of taking care of yourself. In fact, I think you're capable of taking better care of yourself than God is of taking care of you. And you can leave God to take care of the big stuff, but you take care of the small stuff. Because you're very capable of transforming stone into bread. It's the temptation to be selfish instead of submissive. It's the temptation to just be your own God. Because the devil tries to tell you what he told Jesus. I think you'd do a better job of taking care of you than God does at taking care of you. Oh, you can leave the big stuff for God, but the small stuff, the stuff that, uh, that you can handle, the stuff you can take care of, you just need it. You're entitled to this, the devil says. You're entitled to eat. You're entitled to some excitement. You're entitled to your physical needs being met. You're entitled to this. This is a, a God-given right that you have. So Jesus, just transform stone into bread. Just take care of yourself because you can be a better God than God can in your life. At the heart of all sin is selfishness. And I must confess to you that when I am most selfish, I am most sinful. And when I am most sinful, it is then that I am most selfish. At the heart of all sin is selfishness. At the heart of all selfishness is sin. If we could ever get to the point where we ask ourselves not only what are we doing, but why are we doing what we're doing? Not just what are we saying, but why are we saying what we're saying? Not just what are we thinking, but why are we thinking what we're thinking? If we can ever get to that point to discern and decipher, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I thinking what I'm thinking? Why am I saying what I'm saying? And at the end of it, if the answer is just for sheer selfishness, then my friend, that's a fast track towards sinfulness. Because when I am most selfish, that's when I am most sinful. When I am most sinful, that is when I am most selfish. So Jesus answers by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is the prophet Moses speaking to the children of Israel, reminding them, that God provides everything that's needed. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, the children are being reminded that as they were walking in the wilderness, it is God that provided them manna to eat. They didn't even know what it was. In fact, that's what the word manna means. What is it? Because they saw it and they said, manna, which means, what is it? What is this flaky stuff that's on the ground? It's frosted flakes. Why in the world is this here? And it's a gift from God. And God gave it to them day after day, month after month, year after year. He provided manna from heaven. Moses says, look at your shoes. For 40 years, we've been walking these same roads. And your shoes have not worn out. The soles on your shoes are not thin. Look at your clothes. Your clothes are 40 years old, but they're not torn or tattered. Why? Because God provides everything that we need. So man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What Jesus is reminding the devil is that I'm locked and loaded on the Lord. I am so focused on him. Why? Because he is my provider. Everything I need comes from him. Oh, friend, just look at your life. There have been countless times when God probably should have given up on you, but he hasn't. He's never walked out on you, not one moment of one day. Look in your closet. It's God who provides all of that. I know some of y'all are still wearing the same clothes you've been wearing for 40 years. I get it. But listen. You're waiting for retro to come back in style. I get it. I understand. But God has provided everything in your closet. Look at the shoes that you wear. And some of y'all got a lot of shoes. And I know that God is the one who provided all the shoes. Everything you have is because of the provision of God. Because you, my friend, you're a child of the Lord. You've been bought with a price. You glorify God and God alone and you depend on him in all things. So in those moments when you are struggling with selfishness over submission, just remember that all your provisions come from the benevolent hand of God Almighty. The second temptation is the temptation of splendor over suffering. Splendor over suffering. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain. Don't know where that mountain was. But took him to a very high mountain and in an instant showed him all the kingdoms of the world. In an instant, all the fame, all the fortune. In an instant, all the glitz and all the glamour. In an instant, showed him all of the good stuff in this world. All of the nations in all their splendor and the devil said to Jesus all of this I have authority over I have the right to give it to whomever I want to give it it's yours for the taking I'll give all this to you only thing is you need to bow down and worship me if you surrender and submit to me Everything you see will be yours. When you come to this second temptation, you've got to ask a legitimate question of the text. The legitimate question is this. Can the devil make good on the promise that he offers? Can he deliver on that promise? I know what you know. I know that the devil has some authority. I know that he has some jurisdiction and some rule over 
this world. But does he have all authority? Does he have the authority to give the kingdoms to whomever he wants? Can he deliver on the promise that he is making to Jesus? At best, this is a stretch. At worst, he's lying. And when the devil speaks, he speaks lies. And when he speaks lies, he speaks his native tongue. Because the Bible says that he is the father of lies. It is Chuck Swindoll who said that the devil never tips his hand in temptation. He only shows the fun and the ecstasy, the glitz and the glamour, but never the consequences. Oh, that devil never, never tells the thief, I wouldn't steal that if I were you. If you steal that, you just might get caught. If you get caught stealing that, it might land you in jail. And if you get landed in jail, you're going to have to put that on every job application and it'll show up on every criminal background report. Oh, the devil never says anything like that. The devil uh, never says to the heavy drinker, you know, you may may want to think twice about that because your addiction to that bottle is going to cost you everything that matters. The devil never says that to a heavy drinker. The devil never says to an adulterer, you know, you better think twice before you go into that hotel room. Oh yeah, it may be one night of fun. But because of those actions, your life and the life of countless others will be destroyed. The devil never says anything like that. The devil never says to the gossip, look, you just need to shut your mouth because every time you open your mouth, you are just gossiping all over the place and you are littering damage all over uh, the church, inside the church, outside the church. It would be better if you just didn't say anything. Oh, the devil never says anything like that. The devil says, hey, if you want to gossip, gossip. The juicier, the better. The devil never tips his hand in temptation. But when the dirty deed is done, whatever that dirty deed may be, whenever the dirty deed is done, And the time for penalty of sin comes due. The devil is nowhere to be found. Because the devil, he only gives half truth. And if a half truth is anything, it's an entire lie. And the devil speaks his own native tongue when he lies. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that the devil doesn't necessarily want you to hate God. He just wants you to forget about God for just a few moments. It's in the forgetting of God in just a few moments that it leads to failure. That's what he is tempting Jesus with. He is tempting Jesus just to momentarily forget about God. Forget about the mission. Forget about the reason why he was sent. If he could just forget about it just for a moment, then maybe he could give him the world's crown without Calvary's cross. Because that's exactly what the devil wanted to do to Jesus. He wanted to sever the Messiah from his mission. He wanted to sever the Messiah from his mission to say, you can have the crown without Calvary's cross. And he just wanted for just a moment for Jesus to forget about God. Friend, it's not so much that the devil wants you to hate God. He doesn't care if you come to church. He just doesn't want church to come to you. He doesn't care if you read the Bible. He just doesn't want the Bible to read you. 
He doesn't care if you dive into the scripture. He just doesn't want the scripture to dive into you. He just wants you to forget about God moment by moment. Just a few fleeting moments. That's all that's needed to go to failure. So all you have to do is just forget God just for a few moments. It was John Piper who said, temptation's power over me is that temptation tries to persuade me that I would be happier if I followed it. Isn't that the undercurrent of all temptation? Whether it's lust or greed or arrogance or pride, whatever it may be, whatever the temptation is, isn't that the underlying current that that temptation tries to persuade you that you would be happier if you followed it? You would be more satisfied if you followed it. You'd be more comfortable if you followed it. And the power of temptation is when it persuades you that you would be happier if you followed it instead of following the word and will of God. And that's how temptation always works. And that's what the devil is trying to allure the Lord. He is trying to separate the mission from the Messiah. Look, the devil knows that the reason Jesus came was to seek and save the lost. And the devil always has understood from the very beginning that the only way for lost sinners to be saved is for Jesus the God-man to come and die in our stead. That if Jesus went the way of the cross, it would be a way of suffering. It would be a way of, 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 of crucifixion. That if Jesus went the way of the cross, he would climb up Calvary's hill. He would die in your place and mine. And the punishment that should be meted out against all of us would be squarely placed upon the shoulders of Jesus. And the devil understands that Jesus came to give life more abundant and free. So the one thing he wants to do is try to derail Jesus from the mission. The same thing the devil wants to do to you is derail you from the mission. And so the way he does this in many ways, especially in American culture, is he shows us the splendor without the suffering. Because if we could just do a straw poll, if I were to ask you, how many of you would rather have splendor? How many of you would rather have suffering? Let's just raise our hands. How many of you would rather have splendor in your life? Yes. Okay, how many of you would rather have suffering in your life? Yeah, not many at all. Because most of us don't like to suffer. We would much rather have the crown without the cross. We would much rather have the glory without the glory. We would much rather not have to endure the suffering. And we would much rather have the splendor. But my friends, suffering is part and parcel with the human condition. It's inevitable. We can't help it. Because of our broken world and our broken heart, we will suffer. And even that suffering is used by God. Remember what Paul says in the Roman correspondence? That your suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope never fails. Hope never disappoints. When our hope is placed squarely upon the Lord Jesus Christ, he always delivers for us. So that second temptation is a temptation to somehow get the crown without the cross. What's ironic is that Jesus received everything that Satan offered plus so much more. After the resurrection of our Lord, 
Jesus appeared at the very end of Matthew's gospel on a mountain with his disciples around him. And what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What was the devil promising? The devil was promising authority on earth. And what did Jesus receive? All authority where? In heaven and on earth. So Jesus got everything that the devil promised plus so much more. But when did that happen? It happened after the gory crucifixion and the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the devil tries to communicate you can have the crown without the cross but the Bible always says that the cross precedes the crown. That once you go through the cross you will receive the crown. Once you go through the suffering you will experience the splendor but you can't short circuit it you can't turn it around and flip it upside down because every time you try to just have splendor with no suffering there's always sin that results because Jesus knows I worship the Lord and I serve him only that's how he responded Deuteronomy chapter 6 worship the Lord and serve him only in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is telling the children, we are, we are locked and loaded on the Lord. We are focused on him because he is the one who is the king of the universe. So we focus on him. When the devil comes at us, and he does in this American culture, when the devil comes at us and tries to give us the crown without the cross, tries to give us the splendor without the suffering, May we remember what Jesus said. I worship and serve God and him alone. I will never bow the knee. I will never divide the heart. I will never allow you to set up a workshop in my mind. I am the Lord's. May we say to the devil what Jesus said in so many words. When Jesus was addressing the devil, in essence, what he was saying is that you can't distract me. Because I'm locked on God. You can't entice me because my eyes are on the Father. You can't allure me because I am looking unto the Lord. You can't purchase me because I've been bought with a price. You can't buy me because I'm not for sale. You can't give me anything because I got everything in Jesus Christ. So anything that the devil offers me is nothing and pales in comparison to the salvation that God has secured for me in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So every time the devil comes at you, brother or sister, every time he comes at me, we need to understand that we have everything in Christ and whatever the devil is offering us is a bad bill of goods. Whatever he is giving us is a bad sale because what he gives us is nothing compared to what we have in Jesus Christ. The third temptation is the temptation of testing over trusting. The devil took Jesus to the highest pinnacle of the temple, told him, leap, jump off. And the devil was tired of being defeated by the scripture. So then this third time, the devil tried to quote scripture on Jesus he tried to give the word to the word. He tried to give the Bible to Jesus. For in Psalm 91, it is written that he, being God, will command his angels, giving charge over you, so they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not even strike your foot or heel against a stone. People have wondered, um, 
where were Jesus and the devil when he made such a audacious temptation? Most believe he was on the corner looking out over the Kindred Valley. Josephus said that from that vantage point, everybody who looked over became dizzy. And the devil, he does quote, but he misquotes. Apparently, this is the only verse of the Bible that he knows. Because if he had quoted the very next verse of Psalm 91, it says that he, the redeemed of the Lord, will tread on the serpent's head. Ironic, isn't it, that the devil didn't quote that part? That he, being the redeemed, will tread on the serpent's head, on the cobra's head, and that's exactly what Jesus will do, for Jesus will be crucified on your behalf and mine. All of your sins and mine will be placed upon Jesus. Jesus will declare, it is finished. He will give salvation where the first Adam gave condemnation, and Jesus will bow his head and give up his ghost. They'll take his body, place him into a borrowed grave. He'll stay there for the rest of Friday and all day on Saturday for a few hours on Sunday, but early on Sunday morning Jesus will rise up with all power and healing in his hands Jesus will rise up victorious and with his first step he will crush the serpent's head he will tread on the head of the cobra and by his actions he will decisively defeat the devil both then and forevermore and Jesus understands what the devil is doing he misquotes the scripture doesn't even quote all of it creatively omitted verse 13 And Jesus just simply said, do not tempt the Lord your God. Do not test him. Do not give God an ultimatum. Don't live your life in such a way where you force God that he has to do something. Oh, many people believe that the temptation here is for Jesus to be flashy. No, I don't think it's for him to be flashy. People have said, uh, what the devil wanted is for Jesus to show off, to leap off so the crowd around could see. No, I, I don't think it's anything about the crowd because Luke says nothing about people at the temple. He says nothing about the crowd. He just talks about the location. I think the reason the devil took him to this high point on the temple was because it was believed that God dwelled in the temple. The Ark of the Covenant was there in the Holy of Holies. And if God would ever make good on his promise, it would have to be right there at the temple. So he is telling Jesus, let go and let God. He is saying, just, 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 just force God into doing something. And Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, that's from Deuteronomy chapter 16. Three temptations. And Jesus defeated the devil three times. And all three times, he used the word of God. The devil left him until another opportune time. The other gospel writers say that the angels came and attended him. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The devil fleeing and angels arriving. What they did for Jesus, they will do for you. When you defeat the devil, when you defeat the adversary with the powerful word of God, he will leave you until another opportune time, until he perceives you to be weak. That's why he attacked Jesus because he perceived him to be in that weakened condition of hunger. So he perceived him to be weak and he attacked him. When the devil perceives you as being weak, he will put on the full court press. But when you overcome him by the power of Christ and through his word, angels will come and attend you. What a beautiful picture. 
of heaven coming to us. Angels being dispatched to minister to us as we overcome the temptation that the devil has leveled against us. All these temptations, they are both unique and universal. Unique in the sense that only the devil could tempt Jesus in this way. Because Jesus is in a class all by himself, can't be duplicated. But at the same time, while it is unique to Jesus, it is also universal to all Jesus' followers. For all of us struggle with the temptation of being selfish over submissive. And we struggle with desiring splendor to the neglect of suffering. And we struggle with testing God instead of trusting God. So at some level, all of us deal with this. this is, these are universal in their scope. And I want you to see what many of you know that's painfully obvious. That the way Jesus defeated the adversary was through the word of God. I told you at the very beginning to draw your sword. You knew exactly what I meant. Not a one of you pulled out a long sword. You pulled out the Bible. Because you knew that that was an analogy. Because from the scripture, the, the Bible is the sword of the spirit. It's the only weapon given in the arsenal of the army of God. And it's the only one that we need. And so this book says of itself in 2 Samuel that the scripture is flawless. The psalmist says that this word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The author of the Hebrew letter says this word is a sharp double-edged sword. It has the power to penetrate and divide. And Paul says to his son in the ministry, Timothy, that this word of God, this sword of the spirit is God-breathed. It is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in all forms of righteousness. This is the weapon that God has given us because this is the only weapon that's needed. If Jesus needed us to have another weapon, he would have given it to us. And if there was another weapon, Jesus would have wielded it against the adversary in Luke chapter 4. But the only weapon that he wielded was this sword of the Spirit, the very Word of God. And so this is the only weapon that you and I need to defeat decisively the adversary. And he's already a defeated foe. He already has a wounded blow. And this adversary knows that his days are numbered, but he's going to do his best to distract you he's going to do his best to derail you he's going to do his best to divide you from your mission but God has given you his word and his word is sufficient if it worked for Jesus it just might work for you I remember my father in the ministry Robert Smith Jr. one day was asked in class by a student how are you so familiar with so many passages of scripture. How have you committed so much scripture to memory? And without hesitation, Dr. Smith looked at that student and the rest of us and said, let me ask you a question. How are you so familiar with the houses that are on your street? Because you live there, you pass by them every day. There was stunned silence in the classroom. That was an indictment against us. We don't even know our street. 
We don't even know our neighborhood. We don't know where we live. Do you want more power in your life? Live in the word of God. You want more victory over temptation? Live in the word of God. You want more peace that passes all understanding? Live in the word of God. You want more insight into daily living? Live in the word of God. You want more uh, strength in your speech? Live in the word of God. You want more uh, uh, clean up from the neck up? Live in the word of God. Do you want more Jesus in your life? Then live in the word of God. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me before I knew Him and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath that cleansing flood. Jesus has given me victory. Jesus has given you victory. Because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are victorious over the adversary. Because we've been given the very Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, we have everything in our arsenal that is needed to decisively defeat the devil when he comes against you. And brother, I'm telling you, he's going to come against you sister I'm warning you he's going to come against you and when the adversary comes you have everything that is needed in the word of God to be victorious in Christ so this morning my friend do you have this Christ in you if you don't you can all you have to do is ask and this victorious Jesus will take up residence in your life but many of you have accepted Christ. And let's just be honest. The adversary has been kicking your tail the last couple of weeks. And you think to yourself, why? Why is this? Maybe, maybe, maybe. Because you and I need to live better in the word of God. Friend, if that's you, I want you to know that you have a God who loves you and has provided for you everything that you need right here in his word. Because the scripture is beckoning us to live in the very word of God. Don't just read it. Let it read you. Don't just study it. Let it study you. Don't just dive into it. Let it dive into you. And you live and breathe the very word of God. To God be the glory. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. If there's somebody here who does not know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today is the day that they come to faith. And oh, Father, I pray that if there's somebody here who has been struggling with temptation, been falling and failing, floundering in fact, Lord, I pray that today that they will find strength in your word, that today, that by your spirit, they will resolve to know you to cling to you, to read of you, to speak you, and to live in your very word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.